0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman.
1: I'm Candace Watts smith And I'm Jenna Spinelli. And welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about sheriffs, which I think we... All agree that we did not know a ton about coming into this. I think I might call this episode Everything You Wanted to Know About Sheriffs, but we're afraid to ask. We have a, a great guest with us to help us understand what sheriffs do. Joining us is Miria R. Holman, Associate Professor of Political Science at Tulane university. And uh, there's lots of elections on the ballot this fall. And I think given COVID-19, given ongoing protests throughout the country, there's a lot of things right now that sheriffs are, are involved in. And it's, I think, worth paying attention to.
2: So even when I think of sheriffs as a political scientist who's supposed to know a lot of things about a lot of things, Things that come to my mind are Old Westerns, Bob Marley and the Whalers, and <laughs> Joe Arpaio, because he's so closely linked to Trump these days. And so we're hearing a lot more about kind of firebrand sheriffs. But the next thing that comes to my mind is that apparently there are about 3,000 sheriffs in the country, and only four or five of them are Black women. So that comes to my mind. And just before I left North Carolina, I learned that there were about 20 Black sheriffs out of about 100 counties, many of whom had been elected in the 2018 midterm elections. Right? So people are paying more attention to this role and people are stepping up uh, more often and different kinds of people to fill in this role. And, and people are paying attention to these elections more, given the scope of power and discretion that individuals in this elected
0: position has. Really, what I was thinking of when I first heard we were going to do sheriffs had to do with Arpaio, but more broadly about this constitutional sheriffs movement and the way that sheriffs are increasingly involved with kind of a far right conservative politics, especially in the West and South.
2: Our attention seems to be brought to people who do seemingly extreme things because it's newsworthy. But the fact of the matter is, is that the police are our government, and for some people, the police are the main interactions with government they have. And so we think about Congress and mayors and commissioners, but police and sheriffs become really central and key around issues around like social services, social control, resource allocation, and so you know it seems like we should be more attentive to their role in democracy, especially because we elect them. And that may in and of itself be problematic.
0: Yeah. You know, that is a key thing about them, Candace, isn't it? Because you're right that when we think of police, we often think of them as, uh, you know, the quintessential street level bureaucrats Mm -hmm. who interact with the public, and have a broad range of discretion in how they carry out their responsibilities and what they tend to enforce and what they choose not to enforce, that type of thing. But but what's different about sheriffs, of course, is that they're elected. So they're not actually bureaucrats in the sense of being responsible to any other level of government. They're independent actors. And in many ways, the reason that the constitutional sheriff's movement is important is that sheriffs within it see themselves, because they're directly elected by the people, as sort of the people's representative to the Constitution, with nothing in between. (laughs) There are no other elected Mm -hmm. offices in between. And that's kind of a dangerous place, I think, for law enforcement to see itself, for law enforcement to be acting.
2: I think... Learning more about sheriffs, it does a couple of, it complicates a couple of things for me. One, it highlights this idea, right, that there are different kind of ideological understandings of this role, depending who's in the role. Another thing that comes to mind is that, is the role of counties, right? And so where does the role of counties mean a lot more in people's lives? The other thing that comes to mind or complication that comes to mind is, That we kind of think about police chiefs and mayors, and that's one kind of law enforcement, and then there's sheriffs. So even just kind of thinking about sheriffs helps us to understand so many more nuances about the way the law is Implemented and enforced.
0: Yeah, that, that's a good. And also, Candace, I think that when you look across the country at different states and different regions, you really have very different sorts of local government arrangements. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're recording today in Pennsylvania, which has an enormous number of local governments of different types. I think I have seen actually that Pennsylvania has more local governments than any other state. But you know, in other parts of the country, in the South and in the West, I think as well, where you have far fewer incorporated areas, many more wide open spaces, counties tend to play a much larger role mm-hmm. in the administration of government and in, in people's lives. And sheriffs, of course, are, are a county office. And Mm -hmm. responsible for county law enforcement for running the county jails. And I think they play a bigger role in people's lives in those parts of the country than they probably do back east, unless you're in the county jail.
1: And Miria actually mentions that one of the reasons she became interested in this research, because she grew up in rural Oregon, where, to the point you guys were making earlier, there were no city police officers or anything like that. So sheriffs literally were the only law enforcement uh, agency or operation in her area. and. She got to graduate school and found a gap in the political science research about them. And I think we're all better off for it that she's uh, done all of this research. So let's go now to my interview with Miria Holman. Miria Holman, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you for joining us.
3: Great to be here.
1: So we are going to talk about sheriffs today, which is, I know, one of your areas of focus in your research. And, you know, I will admit to walking into the voting booth on election day and not knowing the person whose name was on the ballot for sheriff, nor even really knowing that much about what that person does or what those people on the ballot would be doing. So I thought with the... Um, election coming up it would be good to get people thinking about sheriffs their role what they do all those kind of things so let's maybe start with the most basic question that's what does a sheriff do i realize it might vary state to state or or locality to locality but at the most basic level what do they do
3: Absolutely. So you wouldn't be alone (laughs) in walking into the voting booth and not knowing who's going to be on the ballot for the office of sheriff or what that person does. This is a very common issue across the country. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's really important to talk about sheriffs because they do have a lot of power. As you said, they vary quite a bit. The office itself and what people do in that office varies quite a bit from state to state and even from county to county in the United States. But generally, sheriffs are local elected law enforcement officers. And they run county jails. Uh, That's sort of the most common activity that sheriffs do. So no matter sort of what else a sheriff does, in most places, the jail is run by a sheriff. And that in itself is a very important task. Uh, We know that there are a variety of problems uh, associated with jails in the United States. We have issues with overcrowding. We have issues with underfunding. Right now, we have enormous concerns around the spread of COVID uh, within jails. So sheriffs run those. Also, though, in many other places, they are the primary law enforcement officer in their county, and that means that they're in charge of setting policy and enforcing laws locally. So that means that a sheriff's deputy could pull you over for speeding. It also means that a sheriff's deputy or an officer might be in charge of investigating a crime and seeking to arrest somebody for committing a crime. It also means that uh, sheriffs have a lot of responsibility and a lot of autonomy in deciding what kinds of policies they're going to have in place in terms of what those investigations or arrests look like. In other places, sheriffs also have additional responsibilities. So in California, many sheriffs are also coroners, which means that they are responsible for determining cause of death, which is a fairly large responsibility. And in many other places, they're tax collectors. Uh, So they're responsible for collecting city and county taxes, sometimes state taxes. And in some circumstances, They're the ones that might engage in forfeiture proceedings, so they might take away property from people that have not paid their taxes. And this often then uh, ends up being a circumstance where the sheriff takes property from individuals and then sells it at a sheriff's sale. So you might be able to buy a house or a boat or a car or even, say, some handguns from a sheriff that have been seized during a forfeiture operation. So a wide range of policies sort of fall under the sheriff. Some sheriffs do just sort of one of these. Some sheriffs do do it all. But in general, a very important local office and somebody that engages in a lot of action that has a direct effect on people's lives, but sort of does so in an invisible manner. We don't see a lot of what the sheriff does.
1: So as, as you were describing that, I'm thinking we tend to maybe conjure images of sheriffs from like the days of the Wild West and like all these kind of things. And I'm wondering if the office is in some ways a holdover from a previous era or, or how it's kind of adapted over time as the police infrastructure and these things have seemingly become more robust over the years.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so sheriffs, Derive their initial sort of origins of the office from the Grand Sheriff in uh, the United Kingdom in England. It's actually fun sheriff fact. I have a lot of these. I won't say too many of them just for everybody's sake. But fun sheriff fact is that uh, the office of the sheriff is the political office that appears most in the Magna Carta. Right. So this is a very old office. It used to be the office that was essentially in charge of the enforcement of the king's laws locally in England. However, when it was imported to the United States, uh, the idea behind what the sheriff was evolved, and colonists were really interested in having an independent law enforcement officer and somebody that was not going to be governed by what the king wanted. And so this office of the sheriff was created as this sort of independent office that wasn't going to be, wasn't going to be interfered with by other elected officials. The kicker is that that component of a sheriff has really held over to today. So sheriffs are very autonomous in general Nobody gets to tell them what to do unless they're breaking the law, and then the federal government generally has to get involved. Uh, They don't have to be accountable to other elected officials. So when we think about your traditional police chief, that's an appointed office, and they're accountable to the mayor, city council, city manager, and... If they do something that the citizens of that place don't like, the citizens can appeal to their elected officials, and the elected officials can restrain the behavior of the police officer. It's a much more direct connection for sheriffs. They're elected directly by the population, and there is essentially nobody else that can tell them what to do. And there are very few checks on their behavior. So this is a holdover from centuries of the office existing. In addition, in many states, this is what we call a constitutional office. So the powers of the sheriff, the independent powers of the sheriff, are written into the state constitution, which means then it's very hard for other political actors, for example, the state legislature, to limit the powers of a sheriff.
1: Yeah, so the only recourse it sounds like is for them to be voted out of office whenever their next term is up. Are these typically four-year terms in most places? And what is the turnover look like? Mm -hmm. Is this the type of office where someone gets in it and just stays for decades and decades and decades because there are no other challengers or those types of things?
3: Yeah, so you're absolutely right that the only way to check the power of a sheriff is through elections and voters selecting somebody else to hold office. In general, these are four-year terms. There are some places where there are two-year terms, some places where there are six-year terms. In a couple of states, there are term limits. In most other states, the sheriff is a very long-term elected officer. We see really high rates of incumbency, but we also see really high rates of not just incumbency, but incumbency paired with no viable challengers against incumbent sheriffs. Part of this is due to sort of how you get the experience necessary to be a sheriff, and that's being a law enforcement officer. And so most sheriffs served in the office that they currently oversee. And as a result, in order to have challengers, these have to be people that are willing to run against their boss for the political position. And Most people are not really willing to do that because they're concerned about what happens if they lose. Do they get to keep their job? There's also this other component that we see that sheriffs sort of build legacies. And so a very interesting move that you see quite a bit is that a long-term sheriff will hold that position right up until an election at which point they will resign and appoint their successor to hold their position, who then will run as the incumbent mm. on the ballot. And this sort of means that there is a consistency, certainly in policymaking, but it also means that voters often are not given a chance to make a true choice about who their sheriff is going to be.
1: I assume that there have been successful cases where these incumbents were voted out or there were successful challenges? Are, are there any trends or patterns to what those situations look like?
3: Yeah, so one thing that we saw in 2018, and it will be very interesting to see if it continues in 2020. I'm, I'm excited to see what the fall will bring. Uh, but in 2018, we saw in a couple of, of key places where Sheriff's actions had really been identified by uh, activist communities as something that they didn't agree with. Uh, We saw quality challengers appearing on the ballot with a lot of support from community groups and voters and saw this big turnover. So one place where we saw a lot of these was in North Carolina, where sheriffs of sort of most of the that governed most of the major cities uh, turned over. And a lot of that was because of conflicts in local communities about cooperation between the sheriff and immigration and customs enforcement. Sheriffs often are sort of de facto ICE officers. They allow ICE to use their jails to hold people that are going to be deported, and they check immigration status of people that are arrested for crimes for immigration and custom enforcement. And the community in North Carolina didn't really like the level of cooperation that was occurring between their sheriffs and ICE, and uh, in many circumstances voted for challengers. This was a highly unusual sort of sweep of local offices. And it happened in part because local activists really identified sheriffs, for the first time ever, (laughs) identified sheriffs as an office that held a lot of power around this particular policy issue and engaged in really concentrated efforts to support challengers.
1: Right. And so how do sheriffs typically work with local police offices is it the case that they're usually pretty in step about what needs to happen what what actions need to be taken or are they kind of preserving that independence of you know I'm going to kind of do what I want to do it doesn't really matter what the police think because they can't control me anyway.
3: That's a really interesting question. And the answer is, it depends. (laughs) It depends a lot on sort of what the local power dynamics are. It depends on what kinds of uh, activities the sheriff is engaged in as compared to police department. This also depends enormously on whether we're talking about an urban, suburban, or rural environment. In A lot of urban environments, there's a very sort of careful dance between the sheriff and the police department, making sure that there's not overlap in tasks. And so the sheriff will be in charge of X, Y and Z type of tasks and the police department will be in charge of A, B and C. And the sort of leadership of the two engage in a sort of a careful negotiation around that. In places where uh, there's not necessarily sort of this complete overlap, so you might have a rural county that has a small city in it that has its own police department, there's often some kind of negotiation, but there's also often an overlap between them. And in some circumstances, we see that the sheriff is called to deal with issues where there might be some sort of uh, blowback in some ways. And then the police department is called to deal with issues where the sheriff thinks that there might be electoral consequences for dealing with it. It's sort of this circumstance where the two parties might at some point conflict, and they sometimes might cooperate, and they might cooperate in ways that are conducive to their office or somebody getting reelected.
1: Right. And then as far as the county... Jail piece of it goes. I imagine that has a lot of intersections with other parts of county government as well.
3: This is one place where the sheriff's autonomy really matters, right? So, and sort of who is in this position? For some sheriffs, many sheriffs uh, that I've talked to, or interviewed, or observed. They take the responsibility of running a jail incredibly seriously, and they try to leverage all possible resources that they can in order to provide sort of the best possible jail experience. That means making sure that there are social services, thinking about things like negotiating with the county commissioners to build a separate juvenile facility that will allow for more rehabilitation activities. In other places, though, sheriffs are often sort of getting into fights with, say, county commissioners, particularly around the budget. Sheriffs, when you talk to them, a very common refrain is that jails are underfunded. I absolutely agree with this. They're underfunded for all that we expect them to perform, this sort of quasi-rehabilitation, quasi-punishment, also mental health services, also drug and alcohol rehab, all of those things together place enormous demands on jails. Uh, And so often we see these fights between sheriffs and other county level, sometimes state level, sometimes city level officials, Around resources, who's going to get money? How much money is going to go to the jail? Uh, what degree of autonomy can the sheriff have about how they spend that money on the jail?
1: So you mentioned that you have interviewed sheriffs. And what what did you learn? Or you know, was there anything that surprised you talking to them?
3: Well, one of the things that I think uh, might surprise everybody, uh, certainly surprised me as I began doing this research, is that in most places, there are no requirements to be the sheriff. So you don't have to have a law enforcement background. You don't have to have graduated from college. You don't have to be a certain age. Uh, You don't have to have graduated from high school in, in many places. And so there are a certain share of sheriffs that I would classify as uh, sort of underprepared to hold the office that they hold. Running a jail, for example, is an incredibly complex bureaucratic task. You have to deal with budgets and grants and you have to comply with state laws and federal laws. You have to maintain a building and infrastructure. You have to engage in contracts You have to make decisions about whether or not you're going to do something like hold detainees for ICE because ICE pays you more money than the state does for holding people in your jail. All of these are really challenging tasks, and we sometimes see that the people that are elected to this office are not prepared for the tasks they are supposed to be completing. The other sort of piece that I often see from sheriffs is uh, sheriffs express a lot of frustration about sort of that people don't know what they do, that people don't really appreciate what they do, and that sort of every year they're given more and more tasks without more and more resources, and they sort of operate on the sidelines without people really paying attention to the challenges that the office mm-hmm. faces. One key example with this is the opioid crisis, right? All of a sudden, sheriffs were being expected to deal with large swaths of their population being addicted to opioids. Everybody was all of a sudden needed to be trained in overdose prevention. All of a sudden, they had to decide whether or not they arrest people for overdoses. What do you do with them? Do you put them in an already overcrowded jail? And sheriffs were having to deal with all of this basically without any kind of additional support. So often sheriffs talk about these kinds of policy crises that emerge and how they're sort of left behind and nobody's paying attention to what they're doing. I can absolutely imagine that COVID is the same thing, right? That sheriffs are having to deal with questions of how to deal with COVID in their jails with very, very little institutional or financial support.
1: And you've you've said before that you referenced sheriffs deputies a couple of times. So in most cases, these folks are not just working in isolation, right? They do have teams of people that they supervise. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like? What the kind of role of the sheriff's deputy is?
3: Sure. Yeah. So sheriffs hire and maintain staffs, and those the size of that office varies enormously. So. There are some sheriffs that have one or two deputies, uh, some very rural counties, primarily in the West and upper Midwest. There are other sheriffs that have enormous staff. So the Sheriff of Los Angeles County, that is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States and the sheriff of Los Angeles County has 145,000 employees. So there is enormous variation in sort of what a sheriff's office looks like. Uh, In general, though, we're talking about full-time employees that are hired. They usually go through a very similar process to whatever the local rules and regulations are about hiring police officers. So many sheriff's deputies go through some kind of uh, police academy or law enforcement academy before being hired by the sheriff. They often have some kinds of rules about uh, background checks and who gets to serve as sheriff's deputies. But for many sheriffs, these rules are determined by the sheriff. And so there are some sheriffs that sort of have gotten reputations as Being willing to hire, for example, people that have gotten in trouble and been fired for use of force uh, in other police departments or other sheriff's offices. And because the sheriff gets to make a choice about that, that can be the sheriff's choice to make a decision that they're going to hire people that previously have uh, shot somebody or previously have been engaged in an incident that was considered sort of motivated by racism.
1: Yeah, I was actually going to ask, are there things that might draw someone to pursue a career in the sheriff's office as opposed to the local police department? It sounds like this prior history might be one of those factors, but are there other things that we know about what draws someone to the sheriff's career path versus other types of of law enforcement? Mm
3: -hmm. That's a great question. And I don't think that we know. Mm. Anything comprehensive about that? This is one of these things where we honestly don't know a lot about sheriffs. So, Emily and I have collected a lot of data on them. We know, for example, that sheriffs are mostly white, about 90% of sheriffs are white, and mostly men, about 97% of sheriffs are men. So, it's a very, very white and male office. We know some sort of basic facts about elections and things like that, but there's a lot of uh, sort of information that we just don't have about sheriffs. We don't know a lot about how voters make choices about sheriffs, for example. Does it matter if a sheriff has lost accreditation on a jail? Does it matter if a sheriff hires a bunch of people that have been accused, have engaged in use of force violations? We don't know.
1: All right. And the other thing that this kind of butts up against, right, is also kind of the lack of local news in in many places, a kind of news desert phenomenon. I mean, if people are looking to get information about these races that are coming up, it seems like there might be fewer and fewer sources to go for that. But knowing that that ecosystem exists in many places, are there resources you would Recommend people check out if they do want to become more informed about this particular race in their area between now and and November?
3: That is a great question. As you mentioned, one of the principal challenges with this is sort of good, high quality news coverage. This is an issue that's compounded by sort of the geographic distribution of news deserts, which are much more likely to be in rural areas. Rural areas are much more likely to be the places where sheriffs have a lot of power and authority. And so it's this problem that is particularly pressing for people that are interested in monitoring what their sheriff does. This is one of those places where uh, social media is in many ways The sort of central source of information. I always encourage people to be careful consumers of information on social media. At the same time, most sheriffs have some kind of social media presence a Facebook page or a Twitter feed. Often there's information about sheriffs on local Reddit pages where people sort of post information about their local communities. There is sometimes some information around uh, sort of locally sourced news organizations, but this is one of those things where people are really up against a challenge in finding accurate information about who's running and what the comparative characteristics are of those that are running. There are usually debates and sort of robust campaigns when there are competitive elections, so I would really encourage people to follow along with those campaigns.
1: Yeah. And so we've talked about COVID, about opioids, about some of the issues in crowding of jails, which tie to both COVID and opioids and also immigration, as we've discussed. Are there other issues uh, as we look toward November's election that sheriffs might play a direct role in in shaping policy around moving forward?
3: The other really interesting issue that may sort of be buried by COVID, but is certainly something that is salient, is the role of sheriffs in gun control and often in opposing state efforts to engage in gun control. Sheriffs are much more pro-gun rights than police chiefs are. This is sort of a key fissure between the two groups. And it might be interesting to see whether or not voters are excited about having a local representative that's very pro-gun rights or might use that as something that they hold uh, the sheriff accountable for.
1: Thank you for picking up this gap in the political science research, and thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks, Jenna.
0: That was a very interesting interview and good for them for uh, finding this topic that really has not been much studied and doing some really good social science research around it. One of the points she makes that I think is really important in the current political context in particular is that uh, sheriffs run the county jails and county jails are important places and they're especially important places in terms of immigration.
2: I think one of the things that's important to note is that even in this kind of casual conversation about American prisons and mass incarceration is that we tend to focus and think about federal government and federal prisons, but there's plenty of data that shows of the 2.3 million people who are in the arms of prisons, jails, detention centers, most of those people are not in federal prison, they
0: right? Are in the federal prison
2: and within the county, and most of the people in jails haven't been convicted of a crime. So mm-hmm. their responsibility for resource allocation and turns out that she mentions the responsibility around thinking about mental health, rehabilitation, punishment is all within the hands of the sheriff.
0: The federal prisons actually tend to be the better prisons, at least in terms of how they're run and the professionalism and the kinds of resources and the conditions under which people are incarcerated. But the county prisons or jails, actually, as they're referred mm-hmm. to, right? State yeah. prisons and county jails are a very diverse lot with wide ranging kinds of conditions and dependent quite a bit. On the sheriff who is basically running these jails, controlling the budget for these jails, controlling what people are eating in the jails. Mm-hmm. And then these county jails are also quite important because of the role they play in the immigration enforcement system.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, right. So again, we have this issue of discretion that sheriffs have a great deal of discretion in deciding the extent to which and whether they will interact with federal entities, including ICE. I think Miriam mentions this, but a lot of people are starting to note and notice these relationships between local government and local elected officials and the federal government. One of the reasons why we saw an uptick in Black sheriffs in North Carolina in 2018 was because people in North Carolina did not want their sheriffs to engage and interact with ICE. And so they responded through elections. So, you know, just kind of going back to our conversation earlier is the pros and cons of elected offices. Here we see that the people want something and they elected someone who's going to help them in a certain way. Now, we also know that it could go differently. But again, that's the messy part of democracy.
0: Right. There's less on sheriffs, but there's quite a bit of research around the issue of, say, elected judges mm-hmm. and whether it makes a difference in judicial outcomes if judges are elected or if judges are appointed. And, and one thing we know from that research is that elected judges are somewhat responsive to public opinion. That, for example, right, they're more likely, if I remember this all correctly, to impose the death penalty if the public is both supportive of the death penalty, and I guess also if they're closer to the election. is that Yeah, which is, is that, freaky. There's another implication to all these elected uh, sheriffs as well. So my understanding is that the election of sheriffs is kind of remnant of Jacksonian democracy, where suddenly we were electing all kinds of positions, right? This was mm-hmm. a, sort of a tenant of Jacksonian democracy. And so the modern American ballot where you're voting for certainly here in State College, where we're voting for the coroner (laughs) as a separate office and Mm -hmm. a million other different positions. But it does raise questions of qualifications Mm -hmm. and professionalism. And I often, with my students, like to talk about the coroner position being elected. Is that really the kind of thing that you should be voting for? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or is that something that should be hired based on credentials. And one thing that concerns me with sheriffs is that at least police departments, you can talk about professionalizing police departments and being careful with your hiring in police departments, imposing standards for your hiring and checks and balances and all of that. But for sheriffs, anybody can become the sheriff. And then they can hire anybody they want. As at least that's my understanding of it.
2: I think the logic of elections is that the public will figure out who's the most qualified. So the underlying assumption is that in large numbers we can figure out who's qualified, who's good enough, who's worthy of this position. The issue I think for sheriffs in particular is that most people don't know what the sheriff does. Good and point. and in and then in local situations, oftentimes there's not necessarily partisan elections. So the cue of partisanship may also not be helpful in that situation. So I don't want to go so far to say as that we can't trust the public, but we also know that Americans, generally speaking, don't like history and they don't like to think really hard about political information. So I think this is where the problem lies in the extent to which the American public is willing to learn more about the person who has a great deal of power and resources and decision-making on all sorts of things that are sometimes just not even related to policing. Miria outlines all of the many kinds of things that a number of sheriffs have to do across the country.
0: Candice, I don't know about you, but I learned an awful lot in this episode from our guest about sheriffs, which I really knew very little about. Although I have to say, over the last couple of years, I feel like I've learned a lot more about sheriffs in general, or at least heard a lot more about sheriffs than I had previously.
2: I would have to say that I'm really pleased that Miriam Holman was able to tell us more about this really important critical player in the way that our governments run. And her work with Emily Ferris is basically some of the only work in political science that we have. I'm not sure we could thank her enough for doing that. Yeah. So thanks
0: to Mira for joining us today. And thanks to Jenna for a great interview. And I'm Michael Berkman. This has been Democracy Works.
1: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler, and additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.